chapter 24. I'll let you give you a few minutes to grab that and get there. And I'm going to talk a little bit. Been a, it's been a week. My uh, job outside of this, you know, I, I, my work week always starts on Wednesday. Uh, and then yesterday was my day, where basically my, my Friday for everybody else. You know, it's it on Saturday for me. Been busy all week, and I've seen so many different people this week, and I've had a lot of time to think about all week. And I've had a busy week, and, it, <clears throat> and when I'm tired, I tend to do a whole lot more uh, thinking, a whole lot more like 24. Uh, I, I tend to do a whole lot, yeah, Genesis 24, I think, 24. I tend to do a whole lot more uh, like um, just sitting there and thinking about things and doing things when I am tired. I mean, I literally will sit and, and spend some time uh, um, and, and just uh, <laughs> meditate somewhat, you know. Um, last week we talked about uh, how many teenagers God has trusted with unbelievable circumstances and how they did it with the help of those who God had uh, uh, intentionally placed around them. And, and there was this constant, uh, or, or there, was this co- there was constantly this older generation to guide and mentor these young people all the time. Everywhere I see them in the Bible, there's always an older generation there to help them find their way. Uh, it's interesting to me that the story is based on the young person. But the young person doesn't have the story without the older person in their life. And uh, as I start stepping up into that room where I'm not the young person anymore, um, I, I see things a little different. Um, uh, for me, <clears throat> the, you know, the, there's, there's been guides and mentors in my life, people who counseled me into things and, and things I learned from. I had a conversation the other day with a young man uh, who's uh, uh, su- super good Christian guy, super good Christian guy, but it's like one of the things I found myself saying to him was something that I heard a lot as a kid. Uh, I remember being what it was like to be 17, 18, 19 years old and, or maybe more like 18 and then like have this idea like, you know, anytime I try to talk about something, everybody would be like, you don't know what you're talking about though. (laughs) You're too young. You know, and at that time I'd really never left Kaufman, Texas. And I had never been outside of the town of where I graduated with the other 75 people that I knew since first grade, you know. And, um, and when, you, when you're really wrapped in a, in a circle like that, you think, I'm just going to marry the person I've known all my life because I don't know anybody else, you know, and, which is depressing. I mean, a little bit. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I remember people saying that to me all the time, and I found myself saying the same thing to him, like, you don't know nothing. Like, I, I, I respect your opinion but your opinion's based off your 20-year-old life. You haven't seen anything. Just in the last four years, have you ever learned what your actual opinion is? Because before it was Halo and Call of Duty. That was it. That was like the level of your thought process, right? Outside of school, and then that's it. You didn't care about anything else. Now you're 20, you watch the news all of a sudden, you've seen some Fox and you've seen some CNN, and you got a little bit of an opinion now. You know, you have, But you haven't lived anything to have an opinion. So I was like watching this. And, and I found myself saying, like, I'm saying the thing to him that I hated, right? And so one of the advice that I remember giving to him the other day was like, well, do you want some experience? Join the service. 
You know, by the time I was 21, I'd lived in Korea, I'd lived in Japan, I'd been to Somalia, I'd, I'd seen what it's like to lose friends, you know, to make friends. I'd been across the globe, the equator. I'd, I'd worked with all different sorts of people, all different sorts of colors, all different. I mean, it get, by the time I was 22, I had some life experience that most people don't get for another 15, 20 years. And so I've, I've been thinking about all, all this has just kind of been on my mind and kind of just like a stewing, so to speak. And I started thinking about, well, who were the guys that started to input into me? And, and early on, obviously, my father was one of those. I kind of always thought my dad was kind of a cool guy. I mean, he was always a guy who was very athletic, and, and I, I liked being athletic. He's, he hunted. I wanted to hunt a little bit, things like that, very influential in my life. But I started thinking, as I became a Christian, some of the people who were highly influential to me, uh, uh, one of them was Joy's grandfather, Henry Cutbirth. And I think one of the coolest things that I, I didn't get a chance to speak about him this last week when I was talking about teenagers who've done something kind of awesome is when he was 19 years old, he was married uh, already, 19 years old, he was the senior pastor of a church. Uh, you know what's funny? Where are those older generation that are okay with 19-year-olds senior pastoring churches? Where is that generation? That said, I'm going to vote this guy in. You know what I want? I want that 19-year-old kid over there as my senior pastor. I mean, where is that generation? I mean, that like, he's mighty with God. He must be awesome. You know, I, I, mean, I don't know. But I was thinking about, like, I've looked. I've had a chance over the years. He's passed on now. But I've had a chance to look at his life through pictures, right? And I remember seeing the one with him and his little wife of eight, who's like 18 or 17, maybe. I mean, like back then. And, and like they're standing in front of the church sign and they're the pastor. I'm like, oh, they have no idea. They're about to get killed. I mean, they're, I mean, it's about to be a hard, a hard day's work. And I mean, and then there's pictures of him. I, I, I was looking at a, a picture this morning and it was a picture of him uh, being like 1920 and he's they didn't have a baptismal, so he's baptizing people in the culvert because there's water in the culvert. So everybody's standing around the side of the culvert. You know, the water's going through there, and he's just, like, dunking them in, getting people saved. You know what I mean? Like, awesome stuff. I mean, like, awesome stuff. So as I uh, was getting saved in that church, he had approached me about many things ministry-wise, and, and the Holy Spirit had come upon me to call me into ministry, and he began to give me a platform. And I was the worst preacher there ever could be. I had the worst sermons, and I think they just like to watch the fire burn. I mean, don't we all just like sitting around a campfire, and we'll just like get mesmerized with it, right, when it's burning, right? Ain't got to say anything. It's just got to do what it does. Just look pretty, right? And we just, and we like it, right? And I think literally that's what I was for that older generation at that church. Here comes this 20s uh, guy who just is on fire for God and just says Jesus like a hundred times in a sermon and thinks that's a sermon, you know, and, 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 and he just like encouraged it. I remember he bought me a, uh, the first time I probably felt the weight of clergy, so to speak, or the weight of pastor. And he bought me this shirt. He was so proud because he liked to flirt with the whole like Roman Catholic thing, kind of loved the way they dress and all that kind of stuff. And he bought me this little shirt that had the white collar. You know what I'm saying? And he was like, because he wore one every once in a while. He's like, well, that's clergy. You know, yeah, we're Pentecostal. We're not Catholic at all. But, you know, it's, I kind of like it. You know, I'm like, okay. Well, well, he ends up buying me one. And I remember preaching one night. I'm wearing it because I'm like his little protege, right? I mean, you know, like I look like him. Started, you know what I'm saying? He started to dress me like him kind of. 
And, and, uh, and I remember wearing it. And I remember walking into a store one time to get something and, not, and forgetting that it's on, right? And people just be like, totally treat me different. You know, I was like, man, I should probably get one of those all the time for passion, right? I mean, like, I, I just, I remember stopping one time to help somebody fix a tire and I'm wearing one. And they're like, oh, you know, I go to church all the time. Well, that's nice. I don't understand why you're telling me all that. Oh, because I'm wearing the collar. Okay. You're ready to have confession. You're Pretty, pretty neat thing, right? So he helped me. He mentored me along the way and kind of encouraged me. And then uh, time would go on. Seasons would change. That fire becomes more like a bunch of coals. You know, it's not that uh, 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 it's a, this raging fire that's trying to burn down the logs. Now, I burnt the log. But here's this thing now. I'm a fire that starts other fires now. You can chunk any log on top of it now, right? It's not like the fire's gone away. The fire's still there. It's just big and bunch of embers now. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's kind of a different season for me. And then this, this another uh, older gentleman who was in his 70s, maybe close to 80s at the time, was Moral Adams. And Moral Adams taught me cool stuff. He's the one. Some of you have heard the story where he taught me. He said, man, you know, I was like, well, Merle, you know, when I pray, I, I want God to, to hear me and I want God to, to speak to me and things like that. And he goes, well, let me tell you this story. He said, well, I was driving down the road one time and, and I'm like, God, I really need you to answer this prayer. There's some things that I need in my life to change and these things need to take place. And I'm crying just so hard, Jim. And he goes, Jim, I'm just sitting there and he goes, and you know what God said to me? And I'm like on my edge of my seat, like, tell me, Merle, just tell, just, I'm ready for the answer. And he says, Nothing. God said nothing. He never answered me. And you know what I learned out of that? It's like, that God don't talk sometimes? I mean, like, I don't know. And he's like, no, sometimes it's not about God speaking to us as much as it is about us leaning on him. And there was things like that Merle did for me. Reminded me, like, just because God's not speaking to me doesn't mean that I'm supposed to quit doing things, right? Just because he doesn't open his voice and answer this conversation doesn't mean I'm not supposed to lean at times. He's passed on now, too. And then you got Stephen McKnight, the thorn in my neck. I hope he hears this one day on the recording. Uh, but Stephen is my mentor. Stephen, I came to Stephen. Uh, uh, I remember I had gone through some church issues where you just have some rough pastoring, rough leadership. And you kind of like, ugh, church kind of gives you a bad feel sometimes. You've had some bad leader stuff. And, and I see Stephen, and, I, man, everybody talks so well of him. He comes well, you know, real reputation. He's a quiet guy where I'm not a quiet guy. So our, our, our contrast of us hanging out works pretty well, actually. Uh, I talk, and he doesn't. It's real easy. It works well, right? Well, uh, I'm, Stephen came to me, and he says, man, I believe that I prayed for six months for a guy that was going to come help me, and I think you're the guy. And I go, I don't know if I'm the guy, but I really feel like God's called me. In that moment when he said that, I feel like God's called me to help you accomplish the vision God's called you to do. And it literally became, when we didn't even know each other, we were saying this to each other, and it literally became this partnership that would just bind us forever. And even today, like I talked to him just this past week, and we still share stuff back and forth. And the irony is, for a long time, it was just Pastor Stephen, Pastor Stephen, Pastor Stephen. And it probably wasn't even until I got here after two or three years that it just became Stephen. And the interesting change of mentoring to becoming equal and just sharing his accountability just changed. And so I've got to see some, and by the way, Stephen's two or three years younger than me. He lords it over me. Like he keeps saying, like, I'm like, are you even 40 yet? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, like, uh, what'd you do, have kids when you're 15? I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, I give him a hard time about it because he seems like he, he doesn't age and he likes the fact that he's younger than me, lords it. And so uh, it's interesting to have somebody now, 
obvious the mentor that's older, right? Not so obvious the mentor that's younger. But I can't tell you of how many guys, there's a guy named Chris Clark that while he's not necessarily a mentor, I probably mentor him more than anything. I remember there's tons of business things that I gleaned from him because he was smart in that area, right? I never let age be the issue there about mentoring and and leading. So for me, there's always been this mentor process in my life, this guiding, this counseling, right? You'd be surprised how much I listen to a lot of things people say. And it's had me thinking about my own leadership. It's had me thinking about my own influence as a Christian, as a husband, as, as, as a pastor, as a, as a friend. And this chapter in Genesis this morning is something that I've been reflecting on for, for a long time. Uh, it's always this lingering uh, question to me as a leader because uh, it provokes me to think about it. Uh, because to me, it's like, it's like the water current of this chapter, this thing that's happening behind the scenes that's pressing all this forward. It's, it's weighty a little bit. So we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. It reads, Abraham was now a very old man, and the Lord blessed him in every way. One day, Abraham said to his oldest servant, the man in charge of his household, take an oath by putting your hand under my thigh. Swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not allow my son to marry one of these local Canaanite women. Go instead to my homeland, to my relatives, and find a wife there for my son Isaac. Now, let me talk about this scene a little bit, or just just, just bring us up to here. Abraham is basically desiring a wife for his kid, and he doesn't want it to be just anyone, all right? Abraham's looking for someone that has something of the same bloodline, basically. Someone, and, he want, and he wants someone special. He really wants someone good for his son. And, and this is an, kind of an important task. And he would do it himself, but Abraham has gotten to the place now where he's a little bit old to be making these kind of adventures. A little bit, a little bit has aged, and now he's pressing this on, right? He's going to send this to his chief servant, his, basically his number one, his right-hand guy, And so Abraham gives them very specific instructions in what to look for because it's important. So the guy leaves. He takes what he needs to accomplish the thing he needs to do. And if you keep reading, Abraham gave very specific instructions as to where to look. So the servant goes out as Abraham asks, and he begins to look. But it's interesting to note the actions of the servant as he approached the place where he might find the wife of Isaac. Now look at verse 12. O Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed, please give me success today and show unfailing love to my master Abraham. See, I am standing here beside the spring, and the young women of of the town are coming out to draw water. This is my request. I will ask one of them, please give me a drink from your jug. If she says yes, have a drink. And I will water your camels too. Let her be the one you've selected as Isaac's wife. This is how I will know that you have shown unfailing love to my master. Man, come on. You got to love a very detailed prayer, right? Like, I don't know if you've prayed that kind of prayer before. Like, God, it needs to be exactly like this, right? He plans the actual thing he's going to say and do. And to find this woman exactly the way it's going to happen, right? And then here's what's neat. If you, if you go on and read, the events happen exactly like he prays. 
As a matter of fact, verse 15, if you, if you were to keep reading, it says, before he had finished praying. That's how powerful the prayer was. A little while later, we see the servant praying again. Right after the task was done, he's found this woman that is going to marry Isaac. Listen to what he says, verse 26 and 27. Then the man bowed down and worshiped the Lord, saying, Praise be to the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not abandoned his kindness and faithfulness to my master. So this story is a lot like a, a lot of stories in the Bible. I, I didn't give you something like completely new. You hadn't seen this, some deep text. They're ordinary people confronted with some extraordinary task. It's familiar. We overlook stuff like this. But deep in this chapter lies something at the heart of all walks with God. And, and listen, at the heart of our lives as well. If you look closely, you'll see two attributes that are happening consistently through this chapter. One is leadership. And the other is influence. One is leadership. The other is influence. The servant prayed to God for guidance, favor, for direction, and hope. He prayed in detail. And after meeting the task with success, he gives glory and praises God for answering. And in doing this, he gives us a powerful example as to how to handle everyday life. However, his consistent acknowledgement of God before and after his circumstances is a direct representation of the leadership that he has served under and has been discipled under. Let me explain. Abraham at this point in the Bible is God's right-hand man, right? Everybody knows Abraham. Everybody knows the story of him being the friend of God, right? Therefore, they walk together. They talk together. Abraham will do anything for God. Remember the story of how Isaac comes to be, right? God tells him to go, you know, go kill his own son, and he's willing. He's willing right before the angel stops him, and God's like, I just want to see you. I mean, you know, there's this weird, strange relationship that they have. Abraham serves God faithfully along with the rest of his family, Abraham literally lives out his faith in front of everyone he is around. And that's the key to this whole chapter, that he's publicly living out his faith in front of everyone, and that includes his servants. It includes how he treats them, how he talks to them, how he cares for them. Can you imagine serving under Abraham? Maybe the question is, are you and Abraham? If not, don't you think you should be? Maybe a little? Don't you think your life should be a life that is loud with your principles, with your ideas, with your, with your faith? Shouldn't how we live speak louder than our message? Our lives should have purpose and be influential. And I, I don't know if Abraham's life was intentional or his leadership was intentional, but my guess is that it is. It was probably very intentional. If you were going to be around Abraham like his servants were, then you were going to know his God. How does this guy know God? Because he's Abraham's servant. Abraham sat him down and says, hey, I'm making you serve God. No. He lived his life in front of him. This is how he knows. He's watched Abraham pray. How does he know how to pray? He's watched. He's seen how Abraham prays. If you know Abraham, you're going to know his God. You are going to understand how to pray. You're going to understand how to praise God, right? Both in prayer and in praise, we find the servant fully understanding what the two are. 
You're going to understand relationship because Abraham is what? The friend of God. He walks with God. He talks with God. He prays with God. He praises God. His leadership challenge was always things that made you change your life. He lived a way, a certain way that would cause you to become like he was. <laughs> Grandpa Henry, we called him. And here he is dressing me like a little mini hymn, right? Because what was a mini hymn? At 19, he's leading a church. He's preparing me for what? For ministry. That's what he knew how to do. You look up, you see these things. So the questions are, who are you challenging? Who are you influencing in life? Who are you leading to Christ or to become like Christ? Who are you bringing to Christ? And who are you discipling in Christ? Well, let's look at it from another approach. You don't have to turn there. In Genesis 39, 1 through 6, it talks about Joseph and Joseph's life. It says, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left Joseph's care, uh, in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. That's the life, right? Here is a man. He's so hated by his brothers so badly, because he lord being the youngest and lord these dreams over him, that they sold him into slavery. Joseph has every right to be discouraged about his life when you're a slave. He had every right to be angry. He, they are, after all, his brothers. Everybody's done some. Everybody who has a sibling understands what it's like to fight with a sibling. But at the end of the day, it's your sibling. It's your family. He had every right to revolt from slavery because who wants to really be a slave? No one wants to feel the whip on their back. However, his character was noble. It was upright. He was respectful. Somehow, deep inside the Egyptian dungeons, Joseph had found peace. That's beyond any understanding that I know. The result was a life change, and not just his life, but those that were around him. No longer was he this arrogant, bragging young man that lorded it over his brothers. Did you notice where the scripture, uh, where it becomes specific that the change begins to take place, where they start to notice that Joseph is something different? It says, when his master Potiphar saw, they could see the blessing on Joseph. They could see his faith. They could see all the great things that were happening in his life. What do people see in us? Do they see what Potiphar saw in Joseph? Do they see someone that continually follows after God and does what is right and what is good? Our greatest influence sometimes is not what we say, but it's how we act every day. Let me say it again. Our greatest influence sometimes is not what we say, but in how we act every day. Because our lives should speak louder than our message. There's too many times, and especially on the news and on media, 
I mean, especially now Hollywood's dealing with it in big time, right? Nobody's going to, as soon as, uh, 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 just this week, if you're watching news, as soon as Oprah had her thing on the Golden Globes and there was this talk of president stuff, immediately all the pictures with her and Harvey Weinstein showed up where they're kissing on each other and loving on each other. And here, probably one of the most hated men in Hollywood because he's a, a womanizer, basically. She's all up on top of it. And like, and you see, there's a hypocrisy to your life. No matter what you say, there's an hypocrisy to your life that comes out. You can say all the great things, but it, it doesn't matter at the end of the day if your life doesn't represent your message. It's important how we walk. It's important how others see us. And you know, I don't care what they see. I don't care. Uh, I, I don't know what would motivate you to change. I don't know that caring what other people think is a great motivator. I think caring what God thinks is. But I, I would say this, that it doesn't matter what you say, what you say, if your life can't uh, be matched to it. Matthew 7, 16 says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. If I put an apple down, you will say it's an apple. Why? Because you can see that it's an apple. If it tells you it's an orange, you're going to be like, that's a lie. I don't care what you say. I can see what you are. Many Christians today, the reason Christianity struggles, because there's many people saying the right thing who don't have actions that live it. It's just the truth. John 13, 34 through 35 says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so that you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. You know, the, the funny thing I, I, it is about love is that love, when we love one another, it doesn't mean we walk around singing kumbaya. Like, I don't know how everybody else's family works, but my mom and dad love me. Can I tell you, there are times where, like, we angrily disagree. No one can hurt me like my mom and dad can. Why? Because no one's as close as they are. I've known them from day one of any kind of awareness. I have been with them. I have seen their mouth not match up to their life. I've seen when those things tried to collide and come together so that it would. I've seen change in their life. I've seen good. I've seen bad. I've seen ups and I've seen down. The great part about family and the great part about love is that love endures. It doesn't mean that every day is peace. It doesn't mean that every day is hunky-dory. doesn't mean those things. Love endures because love brings hope that will always get better. They will know us by our love for one another. It doesn't mean we're always going to get along. There were times where I remember early on with my brother where we didn't get along. Weird thing about love, about brothers and siblings and how you can love each other, especially it's a, uh, you know, just one of those circumstances. I remember waking up early in the morning and my brother's picking on my younger brother. So I sock him in the face. My, my mom hears this from the other room, yells about it, right? Yeah, what are y'all doing in here? And immediately we're like, nothing, nothing. And then we all start laughing. Like, that's it. I mean, like, there's no, like, hurt feelings. There is no, like, I can't believe he punched me in the face. I'm never going to forget that every day of my life. We're never going to talk. We're never going to. No. You were doing something wrong. I corrected a little bit. Maybe not in the way that it was all right, but... I was a kid, too. But you know why we could laugh? Because we love each other. No, I'm not hitting him just because I hate him. I don't hate him. 
protecting the little one. You do something that's wrong in that area, that's big brothers for, right? We love each other. Doesn't mean we always handle it right, but we love each other. We endure. By the way, there's so much church wrapped up in that statement. We love each other. Doesn't mean we always do everything right or say all the right words, but we love each other. So we endure. We endure. And when we endure, that's what people see that they want. That's when people see us. When we, when we exercise grace and love, that's when people really see the forgiveness and mercy of God. So what do people see in us? What kind of life are you leading with? What kind of love are you leading with? How are you influencing others? As we move towards our goals for 2018, make no mistake that we are going to lead this community especially towards students, especially towards the heart of the teenager growing up in this town. But more importantly, where are you leading? Where are you leading? How are you leading? What do people see in you? Do they see a Moses? Is that what they see? Are you, the, are you a, 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 like a Moses to somebody? Moses is born in a king's house. He ate from the king's table. All the riches of Egypt could have been his. But something in his heart pulled him to see the error in slavery. Praise the Lord. Something in him pulled to have mercy upon the people he owned. Welcome to being the prince. There are many who might make a great deal of wealth or might just be born into it. Moses could have easily said, who cares, when he was told of his Hebrew descent. But he didn't. He could have made plans to kill anybody who would have accused him of such a thing. But it wasn't his character to do so. The Bible says that he was an extremely meek and humble person. Are you? Maybe, maybe are, are you a Joshua? Do you relate more to that? Are you being faithful at your job, believing that someday God's going to use you in a miraculous way? Joshua stood by as Moses led everywhere, and he just like was happy to stand there waiting for the opportunity. And he served every chance he got. Moses needs something done. He could count on Joshua to get it done. He didn't have to be number one. He was okay with being number two. It's not till Moses dies that Joshua becomes a number one. Do others see you following the leader? Do they see you following with reverence? Do they see you as, the type, as that kind of type person that even if there will be no one to lead, you're still willing to do what's right by God? Right? Even when the whole community is talking about, well, this is what we're going to do. Listen, all I know is for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Do they see Jacob maybe? Have you done some things in your past you might be ashamed of? And gone back and try to make it right. And that's even scary. Have you served faithfully to the promises of God in your life? Have you fought for what you loved? No matter what dupes you. Do you walk differently now? Do you have a limp? Have you met God? For Jacob, it broke his leg, changed everything in his life. He'd never walked the same after meeting God. Maybe, maybe some of you relate more to Ruth, right? Are you this loyal and dedicated woman, right? Are you the type that believes when everything screams hardship and trouble? When everything's telling you should probably, like, uh, get rid of your mother-in-law, like, that thing's weighing down on you. You can't support two lives. You can't even support your own, but you're going to go out there and give it a shot. There's nothing that ties her to her anymore. Maybe it's Samuel. Are you a person that God can count on? You a prayer warrior? Are you a voice when there is no voice? 
Has God endowed you with such an anointing like that that it's literally like anything you pray for seems to happen? Or maybe you're a David. I think a lot of people want to be a David. Are you a worshiper then? Because if you're not, you're not going to be one the David. That's just how that goes. Do they see you as human and mess up? Welcome to David. Right? The leader of the mighty men who's as human as they come, who messes up, commits adultery, tries to sneak out and have murdered the woman he wants, her husband, right? That even today, one of the things me and my friends still talk about when we talk about David and that whole fiasco is that even God still honors your right. Because when you go to the New Testament in Matthew, when they're listing the genealogy, it goes, you know, Solomon came from David and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. I'm going to tell you what, God's keeping count. Do you, but do you fall back on your knees when you have a Nathan maybe in your life who says, you're the person that's wrong with this whole thing? Maybe you're an Elijah. Are you the lone mouth of God amongst all your friends and family? When no one else will speak for God, are you the type of person that will stand up against all the odds? And fight an unwinnable fight? You ready to die for it? You ready to be hunted down by the kings and queens? Someone they call Jezebel, who's still known today for all her wickedness? Maybe they see Josiah in you. Now he's interesting because coming the king there at eight, just because the scriptures were read to him, he immediately understood that the life that had been influenced upon him was so far from the word of God that he decreed a complete life change for Israel. He was the only king after Solomon to be buried in the tombs of the kings, right? When you hear the scriptures, though, are you like Josiah? Does your heart burn to do what is right? That's the coolest thing about him. As soon as he heard it, as soon as he read, man, we're not doing this. We're not doing this at all. We've got to change. And what the funny thing is, he like immediately it goes on. He mourns. He fasts. He prays like, oh my gosh, we've got to significantly change our country. It is nowhere even near what this what Bible says. Is that you? Like as soon as you read the word, you're like, I am broken over the fact that our country is so far away from this. Or our community. Or my friends. Oh, I'm living it up now, but the day is coming where I'll have to answer for things. Josiah moved towards what's right. Maybe you're in Nehemiah. I'm just going through them now. Are you a leader when there's none to look to and you feel significant? You know, you're like, I'm kind of insignificant. I don't have a big role to play. I'm not the pastor. I don't feel like called in this big anointing. Uh, Nehemiah was a cupbearer. You know what that means? He was the most expendable. Everybody's like, well, he, had the, he was right hand next to the king. Uh-huh, to die. Yeah. Hey, this food's coming out. Everybody hates me because I impose taxes and live a luxurious life while everybody's poor and, and in slavery. Uh, there might be poison in my food. Nehemiah, come here, buddy. You know how we're good friends and all. I need you to eat this. Just one bite. He's over there cutting things up, eating it. Let's just watch him. Hey, he made it five minutes. I think we're good. He hadn't fall down and died at all. That's awesome. All right, we're good. Everything, dinner's good, everybody. Ne- I always like picture Nehemiah like a fat guy. You know, he's always eating everything. Ugh. You know, probably the best he ever been in his life. He goes into construction and starts looking great. Like, hey, Nehemiah looks great. Leadership looked, it was good. Saved his life, man. 
Saved his life. I mean, that guy ate everything, right? I mean, that's what he is. He's the cupbearer. He's there to, to make sure the king doesn't die. He's there to protect the king, to take one for the team if he needs to. He's expendable. One of my favorite chapters is chapter 1 where it says, when he heard of the things. This is where I'm so like-minded with Nehemiah when it comes to this building. Because it says, when Nehemiah heard the news of Jerusalem, it said he broke down and he prayed and he wept. And he fasted for days. And then as he began to pray, he said, Lord, if you let me, I'll go fix it. If you let me, if you empower me, God, I will go make it right. If you will help me, God, and down my hands and allow the king to suffice this thing, God, we will build up Jerusalem once more and we will see the glory come back. And I tell you, as I think about the building, I think about all those things, when I saw that there was oh, so many students that are missing and so many, and I'm thinking, well, that's right. Oh, that's great. We're just 200 in youth ministry right now. But I'm going to tell you where you haven't felt the effects because 10 years from now, you will feel the effects. When I listen to the 20-year-olds and the 25-year-olds talking right now, or the 18 to 25-year-old range talking right now, oh, get ready, because you'll see it in your presidential elections and your senator elections, and you'll see their voice. And you remember that you'll have the opportunity to have sowed into that. You'll have had an opportunity to, to grab into that. We can't afford to pass it up. We are not building the present. We are building the future. Nehemiah saw that. He saw that there would be children that would grow up and see the temple restored and the wall built and they would never know a day where Jerusalem had a former glory. Think about that. All they would hear, all their stories, well, it used to be nice for you. I don't know, it's pretty nice right now. Are you kidding me? There used to be a wall. No, there's a wall up here right now. Should have seen the other wall. Was it different? Different rocks? No, it's pretty much the same rocks. Nehemiah saw it. And, and he raised up a generation that saw the temple already built. It was, it was there when they were born. And he raised up a generation that saw the wall there and a city rebuilt that never knew that Jerusalem had been torn down, never knew how ugly it used to be. And we have, we have the power to make that happen again. Maybe they see Esther. Esther was forced into marriage. She didn't have a choice in this whole thing. It's hard being beautiful. Like Joseph, she deserves to complain. She deserves to be delivered from that situation altogether. Nevertheless, she makes this great impact with her influence on the king. And one of my favorite scriptures, I always say it every time, is that her influence was so great, the influence of the Jews was so powerful that it said they all became Jews likewise. That's so, there's a piece of me that laughs at that every time I hear it, because all I can think is, like the, the Persian who's grown up Persian is like, no, nah, man, I'm Jew. Oh, man, I know I'm a little browner, but I'm a Jew. I, I just think that's hilarious. Now, I know it happened out of fear. It happened out of fear because God had granted them such favor in everything that it happened out of fear. But either way, it was wise for them to be this way. Maybe, maybe, uh, uh, maybe they see a Job in you. Are you the type of person that when bodily affliction comes upon you, you still give glory and wait for God? Yeah, most people don't. Most people don't. That's like one of the hardest things I think the hardship we have is when pain comes upon us. We're like, Lord, you got to take this thing away. Why? Because you're going to find out who you are. Welcome to that truth. Maybe if we'll learn to love him in the hardship, it'll be a whole lot wonderful when it's not. Maybe they see Isaiah 
You know, we haven't got here to this part in Isaiah, but at some point, uh, uh, God tells a lot of these prophets to do crazy stuff. Maybe, are you like Isaiah? Are you so sold out to the Lord that you would go naked into the streets outside preaching whatever he wants you to? Anybody got your hands up for that one? Yeah. <laughs> There's fingers being pointed everywhere. Right? I was, I was talking about it this morning, like Isaiah, that's such a crazy task. Listen, buddy. Are you listening to me in prayer, Isaiah? Yes, God, I'm listening. God, just tell me what you want to do. I'll do anything, God. I need you to take your clothes off, buddy. What? Wait, what? <laughs> buddy, I need you to take your clothes off. You're going to go outside. I got a message for everybody. I can't say it with my clothes on. You know, Lord, my mouth is above everything else. It can talk with the clothes on. No, buddy. I'm doing it for a reason. Can you see Ezekiel? All right? There's a point in Ezekiel where God comes to Ezekiel. Are you listening? Ezekiel, yes, Lord, I'm praying. You know, I'm on my knees right now, God. I need you. This is what Israel is like, and I want them to see it. So here's what I want you to do. You're going to take the, in front of everybody human feces, and you're going to eat it to represent how, every, how bad everything is and what's Israel really doing to itself. And Ezekiel goes, hold up, what? <laughs> um, okay, God. You are very wise, and I know you love me because you're talking to me, um, and why that makes a very, very good description. Can we exchange that it, you know, for, with something else like, because uh, listen, I'll, I'll, I'll do sheep dung or something like that, right? And God's like, you know what? Okay, that's good. That'll work. That, I think they'll get the idea. Right. And like it's which, by the way, I love that God goes, I'll change my mind a little bit. Right. I'll change my mind a little bit. Right. So I, I look at the crazy things that God asks us to do, like at different times. And 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 are you the type of person that when God comes to you, man, he can trust you with that? Are you going to do something crazy and outlandish because God said so? When God says, hey, I need you to speak up and say something, are, are you going to be the type that he can trust to do it? You know why he tells Isaiah? You know why he speaks through Isaiah and Isaiah writes a book? Because he can tell Isaiah to get naked and Isaiah will get naked. You know why Ezekiel has such a big, long book? Because he can go to prayer in Ezekiel, tell him to do it, and Ezekiel does it. And when you're obedient, that's a relationship. Then there's like Jeremiah. You like Jeremiah? Some of you young ones. God comes to Jeremiah early in his life, and he begins to weigh on him, like pour himself out about the nation. And the irony is, is in Jeremiah early on, Jeremiah's like pro-God, totally got saved. Jesus, known Jesus since like children's church. Everything's awesome. We went to teenage. I rocked out youth camp, right? I mean, God, I love you. Everything's just pumping, you know, and he's God. Lo I mean, he loves everything about God. And then all of a sudden, there's like chapter 20, like, I hate my life now. Like, God, what are you doing? I don't want to know any more stuff. It was cool. When I was too young to really understand life, it was cool. All this stuff you're telling me, I was getting to be the mouthpiece of God, the anointing and calling. I just enjoyed it. And then there came a time where I started to understand how adults are and how reality is. And I'm like, I don't really like this anymore, God. I don't want to talk anymore. Do you realize I have no friends now? Like nobody, like it, when it was cool to be anointed, it was cool to be called. Everybody loved me in the beginning of my ministry. Now everybody hates me. I have no safe place to go, God. Uh, uh, nobody weeps like Jeremiah. That He wrote a whole Lamentations, right? Because he's weeping the entire time as he writes it, right? But he continually prays for the next generation. He stays faithful to the call. I mean, he's a great bipolar guy. 
But I mean, talk about a guy who loves the anointing call of his life in chapter one, but by chapter 20, he's like, please, Lord, I'm done. Can I just go back to living like the rest of the world? And I don't mean like in sin, but can I just be the Christian that sits back, prays in my home, and one of the 7,000 have yet to bow and need a bail? Where I don't have to be the Elijah, I don't have to be the bang guy anymore. What about Peter? This is on me right here. First sentence right out of the back, I wrote down for myself. Do you find yourself always talking more than you're listening? Do you ask too many questions? Double hands. Are you easily rebuked? <laughs> Are you the type of person that's on the mountain one day with Jesus, and then the next one you're down the mountain because you're too busy lying? I mean, you have a mountain. I saw Jesus high and lifted up. He was with Elijah and Moses. We were, they were, we were talking about sitting tents up here. It was going to be awesome. What happened? Well, we got down, and I said, we should do that all the time. Jesus said, you're the devil. Oh, that was a bad day. It went south on me quick. I'm still trying to figure out this guy. Peter, I always, my heart crushes every time I watch, like, the passion. And it's just the part where Jesus is up there, and they're on the cross, and, and, and he's, or he's, Peter's being denied. Like, he's denying him three times, right? And then it says on the third time, Jesus' eyes looks over at him. <laughs> and every time, man... I mean, like I break, that breaks me more than watching the, the beating. Like the physical stuff to me, it's easier for me to take a physical beating than an emotional one. When Jesus' eyes lock on Peter, all I can think of is every time I do anything that's contrary to the Spirit of God, I think Jesus locks eyes with me and convicts me to my soul. So that I never do these things again. I find myself, listen, I'm bringing all these people out to find out where do you relate. I mean, this is what the whole Bible was for, to give you something to navigate yourself. That you're not the only one that's like this. You should find a little bit about yourself and everybody so that you know you're not alone. These are sojourners with us. They will be where we are going. Do you see yourself as John? No one loves Jesus like John, right? Because he told us so. John is the one Jesus loves the most because he told us so, right? <laughs> is every day a blessing that you spend with Christ? John felt like it was. I always picture John when he's leaning his head up against his chest. They always paint that, you know, like his head's up against his chest. And I'm like, that's weird, man. But then again, John's the only one who ever heard the heartbeat of God. Sometimes, man, a little bit, of it might be too much testosterone. Sometimes it's good to see the sensitive side of things, like a child laying up against the father. Do they see, a, do they see maybe you as a Paul? Has God intervened in your life on a Damascus road? Where you were headed to go do things maybe that you shouldn't be doing? God stops you in your tracks. You had a place where your life was headed. God says, I've got a new destination. Once you were blind, but now you see. Once you were purposeless, but now you know everything about what you're supposed to do. And whether anybody goes with you or not, that's neither here nor there. You're set. You're determined. You know what must be done. And maybe most importantly, do they see Jesus? It doesn't matter if they see anybody else. They better see Jesus. Because the one thing we see in all these people 
the one attribute that leads all the way down through the Old Testament and New Testament is Jesus Christ. Everything begins and ends with him. Who are you? Who are you leading? Who are you influencing? I went through all these names on purpose, and, and, I, and I meant to because we all relate to so many stories. Each of those stories finds some way to influence our life. But what is your story? Is your life...